Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. following sponsors make it possible to produce History on Fire episodes and release them for free. All they ask in exchange is for you to check out if their products may be interesting to you. So let me thank these sweet folks right here at the top. This episode is brought to you by BlueApron.com. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. They deliver high-quality ingredients and recipes right to your door for affordable prices. So check them out and find out for yourself if you could benefit from their services. So yeah, that's one easy way to support History on Fire, is to take them up on their offer to try three free meals with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. I can't even begin to tell you how much I've enjoyed their food. I dread the day when eventually, sooner or later, they will no longer sponsor me because, wow, their stuff is just too good. But in any case, uh, check them out. Don't take my word for it. See if that's something that you could like. Also, big thank you to Eric McGracken. I'm fairly sure I'm screwing up his last name and pronouncing it horribly, so apologies, Eric. He's a personal injury lawyer and combat sports regulatory lawyer. Uh, he has a couple of websites and, you know, he's, he has nothing to sell. He's just asking to, if people want to check out his websites. One is combatsportslaw.com and the other one is bc-injury-law.com. So simple enough. In any case, if you don't catch some of the websites, I put all the links in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. Also, my regular sponsors, who are always in my corner, Onnit and Datsusara. Onnit is well known for their excellent supplements, workout gear, uh, special foods, and other goodies. So please go to www.onnit.com onnit.com forward slash history where you'll receive an automatic discount on any purchase and also my other regular sponsor Datsusara uh, Datsusara produces the, some amazing quality hemp gear particularly computer bags backpacks, travel bags and all sort of other stuff people who are into martial arts they produce uh, brazilian jiu-jitsu uniforms and you know all sort of goodies made of hemp their website is dsgear.com uh, again if you didn't catch any of the above websites links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com at the end of the episode i will discuss more 
how to make sure the, the show can stay viable, plus future plans for upcoming episode. But now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. Let me preface this by saying that working on this episode has been driving me crazy. The more I research for this, the more puzzled I became. You know, normally when I tackle a topic that I'm not already super familiar with, there's a certain sense of mystery when I begin hitting the books. But inevitably, as thousands of pages pile on top of thousands more, the veil of mystery is lifted and I begin to know the story inside out. Well, not this time. The subject of our tale is as mysterious after I read every source I could possibly find on the topic as it was before I started. Which drives me crazy because it really shouldn't be so. You know, after all, the person I wanted to focus this episode on lived not in some forgotten place thousands of years ago, but rather lived in China between the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s. So that's relatively recently and in the midst of a highly literate culture. So there should be plenty of sources. Plus, this person wasn't the kind of person who would uh, fail to catch popular attention. She was the head of the most important pirate confederacy in modern times, and possibly ever in history. And yes, in case you are wondering, I use my pronouns correctly. The leader of the largest pirate confederacy in modern history was a woman. And yet we know next to nothing about her. We are fairly sure that she was a former prostitute from Canton who managed to become the leader of a pirate fleet of a minimum of 40,000, possibly up to 70,000 men, who defeated the Chinese navy on multiple occasions. Compare that for a second with someone like Blackbeard. You know, Blackbeard is a legend among pirates, and much ink has been spilled about him. And yet he commanded but a tiny fraction of the men that our Chinese pirate queen had in her confederacy. It is said that in the West, in the early 1700s, which was considered a heyday of piracy, they were total operating all over the place. There were probably no more than 6,000 pirates, likely a lot less than that. You know, possibly there were 6,000 in the entire Western world. Well, she had something in the neighborhood of 10 times that much under her own personal command. And this is where it gets weird. No one even knows her name for sure. There are several suggestions, but they're all highly disputed. She's mainly famous as Qing Shi, or alternatively as Cheng He Sao, which sound like, okay, well, that's her name, right? No, it's not, because either Qing Shi and Cheng Si Sao are respectively translated as either the wife of Qing or the widow of Cheng. So even her name, like, we don't even have that for sure. Um, historian Diane Murray wrote, not much is known about this remarkable woman. Well, that's the understatement of the century. You know, yes, there's a lot of myth surrounding her, but very little in the way of hard facts. Even most Chinese historians have hardly discussed uh, Chen Hisao. I guess we'll refer to her as a Chen Hisao. Keep in mind, Qin Shi is the alternative version, but there, there are another couple of possibilities that she's referred by, but we'll use Chen Hisao. 
And whenever Chinese historians have actually done so, they have stuck to very few basic facts about her life, which is completely maddening considering that she was an extremely important historical character. Most of the info we have comes from Yuan Yunlun, History of the Pirates who infested the China Sea from 1807 to 1810, which was written by a guy who was friends with many of the officers who were killed by pirates during that period of time. We also, in terms of primary sources, we also have uh, Richard Glasspol's A Brief Narrative of My Captivity and Treatment Among the Ladrones. Ladrone was the Portuguese term for pirate. Glasspol was a British officer working for the East India Company. He and six or seven other people were captured close to Macau on September 21st, 1809, and they were held until December 7th. So this uh, primary source we have written by him was a diary prepared for the British East Indian Company. Eventually he was freed when a ransom of over $4,000 plus some cases of opium and gunpowder were paid to the pirates. But clearly both of these sources are highly unreliable. Um, first, because they are clearly biased. Second, because they do change the narrative to suit their needs quite a bit. Now, in some way I shouldn't be surprised. Uh, pirates are not exactly known for sitting down to write history in between bloody raids. And governments are usually not thrilled in publicizing people who kick their butts. And that's one of the things that's interesting about the story we're going to tell today. You know, the typical pirate story. You have uh, somebody who breaks the law, become a pirate, become rich and famous for a while, until inevitably, in not too long, they crash and burn. Eventually, the law triumphs, and you know, kind of like, as the clash would say, I fought the law and law won. Well, that's not the case with Chang'e Sao and their pirates. This is more of a case is, I fought the law and I won. Because as we're going to see, she's going to represent the extremely rare case of a pirate who bring governments down to their knees begging for her to quit, begging to find a, a peaceful resolution. So in any case, long story short, since there is far too little about Chang'e Sao for a biography, you know, I wanted to do a biographical piece about her, the same we have done for Crazy Horse, Theodore Roosevelt, Caravaggio, some of these people. Well, I can't, because if I did that, I would have material, this episode would last 15 minutes. So what I did instead is I had to switch my focus and turn this episode into something that, rather than focusing exclusively on her, will explore the larger context in which she operated piracy in southern China in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Before we proceed further, let me state for the record that I will likely butcher horribly most of the names in this episode. Despite having been married to a Chinese woman, my familiarity with the Chinese language is only enough to tell me that tonal languages are monstrously difficult to master, 
And I mean, you guys shouldn't be surprised, right? I, you already know the horrible things that I do to the English language on a regular basis. So you can imagine what I'll be doing to Chinese words in this episode. If you speak Chinese, sorry about that. But okay, let's start by providing some context. Uh, the good old basics like when and where. Uh, let's look at the where first, the setting of our story. Today we'll play primarily with the coast of those provinces of southern China, such as Guangdong and Fujian. Uh, both provinces feature jagged coastlines and mountains, separating the coast from the interior. In this sense, the coastline of southern China and northern Vietnam as well seems almost to be made for piracy. There are many small bays where it's easy to hide, there are plenty of islands, and better yet, there are lots of ships crossing these waters, so lots of potential preys for pirates. Canton, for example, was the number one trading spot in, in southern China at this time. So considering the ideal setting, it's really not that surprising to run into three different periods when piracy was very common in this part of the world over the last 500 years. The first one is commonly dated as between 1522 and 1574, the second between 1620 and 1684, and the third, which is the one we'll focus on, between 1780 and 1810. The first wave between 1522 and 1574 was partially caused by a curious policy promoted by the Ming dynasty, placing severe limitation on sea trade. The emperor at the time wanted to enforce some sea bans on trade that had existed at least nominally since the 1300s, but hadn't really been enforced. Uh, he instead wanted to enforce them to restrict both social and physical mobility. Among these restrictions, it was illegal to build uh, ocean-going junks. You could not uh, trade with foreigners. Um, traveling abroad without previous authorization was forbidden. Sometimes even bans on fishing mm, too far from the coast existed. This was done supposedly to prevent smuggling and piracy and limit the power of merchants, but what it did instead was basically kill the economy. So instead of crushing illegal activities, it made them grow exponentially. Because these policies forced most people on the coast who depended on this trade to turn into smugglers because stupid laws limited their chances to earn a livelihood in a legal way. And at that point, once you cross the border into an illegality, the step from smuggler to pirate was a really small one. So a lot of the early pirates were merchants who did the piracy as a side business. Um, most of them came from a rather... they were not from a single ethnic group. There were Japanese pirates, Chinese, Malaccan, Thai, Portuguese, Spanish, even African. I mean, there was... because the reality is that the movement of goods in this place, the degree of trade, attracted people from literally all over the world. Uh, the Portuguese in Macau, for example, not only traded with China, 
but sometimes engage in straight-up piracy, attacking villages, stealing children to sell them into slavery. So that was the contest. But after the death of this particular emperor in 1567, the sea trade was legalized again. So that took away some of the primary reason why piracy had begun to, to begin with. The second wave of piracy took place between 1620 and 1684. This was a period of major political chaos due to the change in dynasty and wars between supporters of the Ming and the Qing dynasties. It's almost hard to distinguish trade from rebellion from piracy because they're all kind of mixed together. And to make things even worse, there was at this time an unusual number of floods, typhoons and droughts, which created food shortages, so inevitably prices went up, and of course any time the price of rice goes up, more people think that piracy may not be such a bad idea after all. I mean, there were even times when famine got so bad in southern China that there are reports of cases of cannibalism due to such little food. So, you know, clearly if people are one step away from becoming cannibals, they are not going to exactly look down on becoming pirates. During this period, the Chen family, under the leadership of a Cheng Xilong, uh, was originally a merchant and uh, his children, they started building a powerful pirate organization. Now remember this family because they are going to play a key role in the rest of our story. The Chen family became so powerful in the era between Fujian and Taiwan that hardly any ships could sail without paying them off first. Uh, many officials, both locally and the imperial court, were on their paybook. In one occasion, after some heavy droughts, uh, the patriarch, uh, Cheng Shilong, decided to give, give out plenty of food and jobs to thousands of people who were otherwise on the brink of starvation. So with this move, he gained lots of political support. I kind of like to think of him as this uh, semi-benevolent mafia boss in uh, Don Vito Corleone style. You know, mixing criminal activities with this kind of moves to gain popular following. When the government started breathing on his neck a little too much, he made a deal to surrender in exchange for a high-ranking military position. And he then used this position to go hunt down all his rival pirates. Within a few years, he had eliminated them all. But... Unfortunately for him, the Ming Dynasty fell in 1644. So Cheng Shilong returned to piracy, but two years later he had to surrender again to the Manchu conquerors who had started the Qing Dynasty. However, some of his relatives, including one of his sons, people like Cheng Cheng Dong, Cheng Hong Kui, they continued to resist mixing piracy with loyalty to the Ming Dynasty. And, you know, they became basically the, the next generation to take over the family pirate business. The Cheng, however, had some competition from European pirates throughout the 1600s. Both the Dutch and the British replaced the Portuguese as the dominant Western powers in this period. And much like the Portuguese had done, they mixed trade and piracy, regularly stealing from Chinese ships. 
1622, for example, the Dutch attack Macau and some of the village, uh, the villages around it, kidnapping over 1,400 people in order to sell them into slavery. In 1624, they occupy Taiwan, which they use as their pirate headquarter until a member of the Chen family kicked them out of it in 1661. The Chen family and the Dutch feuded for several years. Um, the Chen eventually tried to take Nanking itself, which was a rather ambitious goal, but they failed in doing so, so the patriarch uh, Cheng Chenggong retired to Taiwan, where he died uh, in the 1660s. The Manchus had seen the Cheng family as a threat, so they put lots of effort to try to cut them off from any support. They prohibited building larger ships that could go far from the coast. They reenacted, you know, some bands of merchants in the area, for example, they were not allowed to go into the sea on, pena on penalty of death. I mean, some of these bands were even stricter than the Ming bands that had contributed to the first wave of piracy. Despite all these, they still couldn't beat the pirates. So in 1661, they force villagers in most of Fujian and Guangdong province to relocate 10 to 20 miles inland. You know, they destroyed villages on the coast and anyone caught trying to return to the coast was executed. Think at how crazy this is to basically demolish the economy that's based on the sea in, in a couple of provinces in order to defeat the pirates. And despite all this, they still couldn't beat them. So what these draconian policies destroyed the livelihood of coastal villagers who depended on the sea, and yet they could not fully defeat the pirates anyway. This continued for several years. Eventually, it was obviously becoming harder and harder for pirates to make a living, plus constantly being engaged with battles with the navy, plus they were lured by a policy of forgiving those who surrendered, so all of these factors combined made the number of pirates decline. And by 1669, then the government start easing up some of the restriction and they allow a few people to return to the coast. Uh, in 1683, the government scored a success when the Qin Navy kicked the Chen family out of Taiwan. And after that, they got rid of all the sea bands. They allow people to resettle on the coast. They allow trade to take place again. So around the 1760s, Chinese piracy, by that point, you know, almost a century later by now, Chinese piracy was nearly extinct. There were small group of desperate outlaws who would run in the face of any opposition. They were, you know, small scale kind of people. To the point that the emperor in the 1790s would even go out and say, I quote, they have gradually withdrawn and not a trace of them remains. As it turns out, he was a bit premature with his mission accomplished claim because the third wave of piracy was about to begin and was much bigger than the previous two. 
So let's jump into this. But before we get into this third wave, it may be useful to remember that southern China was very ethnically divided. In these provinces, you had multiple ethnic groups vying for power and status on land. And on one hand, you had the more established land dwellers, uh, who would refer to the people who would live uh, more on the coast or uh, lived as fishermen, as traders. They would refer to them as boat people. These were mostly from the Hokkien and Dan, also known as Tanka, ethnicities. The so-called boat people were the poorest of the poor, who found themselves squeezed out of any ownership of land, so they ended up trying their luck on the water. Many lived uh, their whole lives on the water in floating villages. They would arrange their boats in harbors at sea, forming giant villages with, uh, I guess we can call them streets, they're not streets since it's not paved, but you know, they would, they would have their boats lined up in the same way that houses are arranged on land and they would only leave their spot to go for some uh, either fishing or trading out in the open sea. Many families lived on these boats most of their lives. They would uh, rarely set foot on land. An estimate suggests that there were probably about 80,000 boat people just close to Canton itself in the mid-1800s. Mostly sailors, fishermen. Sailors typically had very low social status and didn't fit into the classic Confucian division between scholars, farmers, craftsmen and merchants. The job of a sailor was considered dishonorable. It was seen as a job for the lowest of the low. It was a dangerous job for one. There were lots of injuries, uh, lots of drowning. It it was clearly a high-risk occupation because shipwrecks were far from uncommon. Same thing with fishermen. Fishermen were also seen as low-class by land dwellers. They were discriminated against by land dwellers. They were seen as very much outside the boundaries of respectable society. So this paria status plus the mobility that living on boats afforded them, plus the knowledge of the sea, made them the logical people who would turn to piracy. Often piracy was a seasonal thing. They would would alternate fishing and piracy. Fishermen were often in debt to what were known as fishmongers, what exactly was a fishmonger, you may wonder? Well, these were people who loaned them money in exchange for uh, a portion of a future catch. So as a result, these created a system almost of indentured servitude, where fishermen were constantly in debt to these people who uh, loaned them money. Mainlanders, you know, the division between the boat people and the mainlanders was so radical, they spent so little time with one another, The mainlanders had all these kind of myths about the dance sailors. They said that they had webbed feet, that they could breathe underwater, they they clearly were different people, you know, they worshipped their own sea gods. There was, uh, the way they spoke was uh, rather different from the way land dwellers did. They had their own uh, kind of working class speech that was very 
at odds with the polite speech of the higher classes. A Western observer commented, I quote, Their courses and imprecations are most horrible. Their language most filthy and obscene. So this uh, unique kind of dialect that they spoke contributed to create this sense that they were a different people altogether. As I hinted at earlier, in addition to their familiarity with the water and their experience with discrimination, another defining characteristic of their lives was poverty. And poverty was the key factor at the roots of piracy. Each of the three pirate periods began with famines, and economic problems. Pretty much any time the price of rice increased, piracy increased too. The early 1700s have been characterized by sporadic small-scale piracy, but the frequency and intensity of piracy was steadily growing in the latter part of the 1700s. Part of the reason for this is due to the fact that the late 1700s were a time of population explosion, The population of China had doubled within the space of a century. Economic tendencies push toward more extreme differences between the super-rich and the super-poor in southern China. The population boom led to too many people for too little land. So by the late 1700s, the difference in wealth between the rich and the poor was growing by the day along the coast of China. Merchants could make fortunes at sea, while sailors barely scraped by. In the early 1800s, things were better in China than Europe, you know, but there was a longer average lifespan, better average nutrition, but not for everyone. You know, distribution was highly unequal. Some did great, many did horribly. In his book on Chinese piracy, author Robert J. Anthony writes the following. When they, um, by they he's referring to the poor, when they saw a word of plenty, but it was a word not open to them. The reason why people chose to turn pirates is pretty obvious. If your position in the economic system ensures that you can't make a living legally, then doesn't take a genius to see what's going to happen. Lots of people will choose to make a living illegally. Wealth distributed very unevenly not surprisingly lead to um, many people wanting to cross the line into outlaw activities, into piracy, in order to have access to a wealth that they could never attain otherwise. You know, the reality, and we know it in our own time, that where you end up has a lot to do with where you start. Sure, you know, there's always the case of somebody who starts out with nothing and they make a fortune. Can it happen? Yes. Does it happen? Yes. Is it common? No. And that, you know, was true back then as it's true today. Following the law was a luxury that many both people could not afford. So it became common for both people to switch from legal work to piracy and back again. Confucianism, which was the dominant philosophy of China for many centuries, argued that it was better to go hungry than to steal. (laughs) Which makes you wonder whether Confucius 
actually ever tried going hungry for a long time, because poor people who knew hunger all too well didn't seem to agree with him and instead turned to piracy on a fairly common basis. In some way, piracy is the logical way to avoid extreme poverty. There were much higher profits in piracy than there were in becoming a soldier, a farmer, or even in becoming a skilled worker. In 1799, even the governor of one of the southern provinces in charge of fighting pirates, who clearly is not the guy who would be looking to make alibis for pirates, the governor openly stated, people are not born sea bandits, but drift into brigandage because they can no longer support themselves. So, you know, the economic reasons for pirates are pretty clear, right? There's no mystery there. There's a great Robert E. Howard quote. Robert E. Howard is the author of uh, who created uh, characters like Conan the Barbarian and several others. In his short story, Beyond the Black River, which is a beautiful, beautiful short story, Conan the Barbarian, not O'Brien, said the following. He says, I never planted wheat and never will, so long as there are other harvests to be reaped with the sword. I never planted wheat and never will, so long as there are other harvests to be reaped with the sword. That was basically what a lot of poor boat people were feeling. Uh, They were ready to go the illegal route in order to escape the deepest poverty. Author Robert J. Anthony writes, What they wanted was the opportunity for a decent living and an even-handed access to the things denied to them by privation and prejudice. So piracy clearly was a culture outside the boundaries of acceptable Confucian virtues of honesty, self-restraint. Pirates were much preferred hedonism as a way of living. Again, with one more quote, in the rough and violent world of seafaring, mariners could not afford to always abide by the niceties of the law or proper etiquette. To survive, they had to devise their own lifestyles, habits, and standards of behavior, most of which stood in contradiction and opposition to that of dominant society. But no matter how understandable were the both people reasons for turning to piracy, the government didn't take their choice well. In the 1790s, the emperor ordered immediate execution for pirates if they were found guilty, so immediately after the trial. And their severed heads would be placed on pikes. So the severed heads of pirates and their collaborators found on pikes were a common sight decorating many places in southern China at this time. Despite the fact that economic factors were certainly important, the growth of piracy in the late 1700s cannot be explained without mentioning another important element in our story. The Vietnamese Civil War and the role that these played in expanding piracy in southern China and northern Vietnam. 
For the sake of keeping this simple and not getting lost in the matter of all tangents, I will not go into the details of what this civil war was about. And because it really gets, otherwise we end up into a whole thing of Vietnamese history and, you know, we are, it will be very easy to get lost. Plus, this will be a complicated tale for other reasons, because to make matters even trickier, most of the key characters involved in the Vietnamese Civil War are named Nguyen on both sides of the conflict, which is not surprising since a huge percentage of Vietnamese people to this day carries the Nguyen last name, so no surprises there. But still, for people who are not used to it, it gets really complicated. So for the sake of keeping our focus on Chinese pirates, let's just say that a popular uprising began around 1770. This was known as the Taishan Rebellion. In 1773, they seized the provincial capital, and in, by 1786, they entered Hanoi. One of the rebel leaders even claimed the title of emperor, but for the next several years, he and his descendants would be busy fighting against rivals to the throne in Vietnam. Um, they would also fight an attempted invasion by what back then was referred to as Siam, which would be modern-day Thailand, and another attempted invasion by China. So what do our Chinese pirates have to do with all of this? Well, the Taishan rebels quickly began hiring Chinese pirates as their own navy. And this was a crucial step into turning small bands of Chinese pirates into a semi-professional military force. The Tyson rebels gave the pirates safe bases, weapons, ships, gave them titles, uh, gave them military positions. You know, piracy existed for a while at the border. You know, both Vietnam and China had limited trade. You know, Vietnam didn't allow exporting rice. China didn't allow exporting iron. But of course, this restriction boosted the size of the black market and people around the border became quite used to breaking the law. There was the town of Chiang Ping, was a town at the border between China and Vietnam, that had become a pirate headquarter and the markets there were fueled by this illegal economy. It was a town made of gambling parlors, opium dens, floating bordellos. You got the picture, you know, a pirate heaven. The border worked great for pirates, because they would raid in one country and then they would flee into the next before the authorities from that country could chase them. Kind of like what the Apache did, fighting boats against Mexico and the United States, and they would use the border to their advantage. Uh, if you have never checked out the Apache story, there's a great older Dan Carlin episode entitled, if I remember correctly, Apache Tears. Back in the old days when Dan Carlin used to be able to do an episode in barely over an hour, which may sound crazy today since most hardcore history episodes are these four, five, six hour, hours marathons. But that was a great story, and he goes into how they use the border, but in any case... This phenomenon existed on a small scale until 1790. But once the Tyson began hiring pirates, things changed quickly. China tried to help the deposed Vietnamese emperor 
against the Taishan. Taishan, however, they defeated the Chinese army on more than one occasion, so eventually by 1788 they were recognized as legitimate. But part of the problem, though, is that the Taishan leadership would send tribute to the Chinese court, but at the same time would sponsor pirate raids into China. You know, the pirates would raid in China, they would come back into Vietnam, they would give a cut to the Taishan regime in exchange for protection and open markets and all that stuff. So the Chinese emperor at this time was busy squashing land uprisings, so he didn't take pirates all too seriously, which allowed for their growth. And also he didn't want to get into a fight with the Taishan regime in Vietnam by cracking down on pirates, so they kind of looked the other way. Now, before this story gets too complicated, remember the Chen family I mentioned earlier? Those guys who had played a key role in the second wave of piracy? Their descendants were now to uphold the honored family tradition and play an even bigger role in the third wave of piracy. One of them, Chen Chi, or Chen Chi sometime, again, pronunciation is not going to be my strength in this episode, he became a general in the Vietnamese Navy to fight against the royalist forces in Vietnam. By the very beginning of the 1800s, Chen Chi had more than 200 ships, more than anyone else in this area. He was an important ally that the Dyson regime relied on to keep fighting members of the previous dynasty who were contesting the legitimacy of their claim to the throne. By 1796, piracy had become huge. You know, the, the Chinese occasionally would capture some pirates and found hard evidence that these pirates were sponsored by the Taishan. So, a new law passed stating that any Vietnamese pirate would be immediately executed. And the Taishan pretended to cooperate with China. You know, they would ha- hand over a few small-time pirates but clearly they were shielding the, the big players since they were their navy. You know, they, they could not exactly turn on them. China understood this perfectly, understood that this was just a token gesture. And among the harsh law they passed, they, they passed this penalty that penalty for pirates would be death by slicing which, in case you're wondering what that means, yeah, it does not sound like a good thing, does it? It was also known as death by a thousand cuts, which was really just as bad as it sounds. Story go that authorities would tie the convicted person to a wooden frame on a public square, and then they would proceed to slice them and dice them until they finally killed them. The whole process could be quick, if authorities were in a good mood and they would inflict lethal cuts first so that kill the person so they won't suffer and then they would chop up the body just to add offense to injury but at least no pain involved or it could be a prolonged process if authorities were not in such a good mood and decided to cut in non-lethal places in order to prolong the execution. In either case, this was not exactly a barrel of monkeys. 
but the harshness of the punishments didn't do much to stop piracy. So frustrated with the lack of success, the government again began the policy of offering amnesty to those pirates who surrendered and even paid them to surrender. They would often enroll them in the army far away from the coast and they would encourage them to bring the heads or ears of other pirates as proofs that they had truly reformed. Most of the time, pirates faked it. They would show up, uh, take the money, and then return to piracy. But that was the effort that the government was trying to make. By the beginning, the very turn of the century, by the year 1800, however, the Tyson in Vietnam were beginning to lose. And three major pirate leaders were all killed in battle around this time. By 1801, the pirates were forced to realize that the Tyson regime was, as it days numbered. So they began abandoning them. Even Chen Chi died in 1802 in battle in Vietnam near Hanoi. A cousin of um, of the previous pilot, pirate leader, which, of course, because it would be too simpler if he had a very different name, so it has a nearly identical name, is Cheng Yi, became the new pirate leader. But by now, the Tyson were largely crushed. In 1802, it really there was a final battle. The Tyson dynasty was overthrown. The rebel emperor captured. And one of the things that the new dynasty, or rather the old one that was making a comeback, one of the first things they did was to send a few pirate leaders to China, destroy their bases at Champing, to show that Vietnam will from now on be off limits to pirates. So this is a key turning point. By every reasonable estimate, now that the Tyson dynasty laid in ruins and Chinese pirates no longer had a state protecting them, it seemed almost like a foregone conclusion that the third wave of piracy would come to an end. Being kicked out of Vietnam, they had to return to China, but as hunted enemies of the state. In what must have seemed like a dream come true to the Chinese emperor, the different pirates began fighting each other over access to limited resources. So the government could sit back and watch them weaken one another and then swoop in to finish them off. But just when it looked like the end was in sight, something happened that changed everything. In a genius move, realizing that competition would push them to kill each other and would basically do the government job for them, in 1805, the seven most important pirate leaders signed a pact to join forces together and create a confederacy. They would agree to common policies and rules they would all respect, they would coordinate their operations and divide profits. After a major injury that led him to lose half of his face, one of them, Cheng Liu Tang, decided piracy wasn't so hot anymore and surrendered shortly afterwards, so six pirate leaders remained. They would form what were known by the color of their sails, the Red Fleet, the Black Fleet, the White Fleet, the Green Fleet, the Blue Fleet and the Yellow Fleet. Uh, 
They had all fought in Vietnam before. The Tyson sponsorship had increased the combat skills of their respective crews through experience and more formal training, and they had turned them from random bandits into an army. The fact that now they would all join forces was really bad news for the Chinese government. Because now they were facing a confederation of something in the neighborhood of 50,000, 60,000 pirates, somewhere around there. Now, this ability to not only survive, but thrive after the catastrophe in Vietnam says a lot about the genius of their leadership. The most important of all of these six pirate chiefs was the same Cheng Yi we had mentioned not long ago. He was the latest leader of the Cheng pirate family. Cheng Yi commanded the Red Flag Fleet, which had uh, somewhere between 20,000 and 40,000 men. A close second to him was Kuo Po Tai, who was... Kuo was an interesting guy. He was kind of a nerd whose ships were full of books, which was rather unusual in his line of work. He had been captured as a 14-year-old by Cheng Yi, and Cheng Yi kind of liked him, and so he had groomed him into a pirate commander. So together, Cheng, Kuo, and four other bosses of the Confederacy quickly turned their pirate enterprise from a minor problem for the Chinese government into a national and even international issue. This, in fact, is not something that would simply affect Chinese people. In Chinese waters, after all, the pirates sailed through the same waters as did the British, the Portuguese, and the Chinese Navy. In some way, this context reminds me of the frontier in North America at the time of the French and Indian War, when the French, different British colonists, and many native tribes all met, traded, and fought with one another. It was a, it what was essentially a no-man's land, where no single power reigned supreme. If you have seen the movie, picture the world of The Last of the Mohicans, but in the ocean. In the early 1800s, in Chinese waters, there was a similar situation with each group making and breaking alliances and jockeying to carve for themselves a profitable niche on this scene. Speaking of profitable, pirates financed themselves in a variety of ways. One was to make money by charging protection fees. You know, if you wanted to sail without having to worry about being attacked by pirates, all you had to do was to pay them up up front. And considering how effective pirates were in their control of the sea in Southern China, many merchants figured it was easier to pay them a small percentage for safe passage rather than define them and lose all of your cargo and your men. Salt merchants paid off pirates to let them sail. Uh, in some cases, pirates were even paid to escort the ships, and they would regularly destroy anybody who didn't pay. They did the same thing with opium traders. Pirates were very strict about making sure that those who had paid would be unmolested. So it was smart for pirates to build a reputation for fairness to those who had paid and cruelty to those who did not pay 
in order to offer a clear path people would choose. In one occasion, there was a subgroup of pirates attacked the wrong ship, one that had boat protection, so later their chief forced them not only to give back everything they had stolen, but even to pay reparations. So the whole protection racket was so vast that the Confederates even set up a tax office in Canton to collect protection fees. Besides the protection racket, pirates of course did what pirates around the world are famous for. Attacking ships to steal their cargo and sometimes the ships themselves, either to keep them for themselves or to sell them back to their owners. But pirates were not indiscriminate in their attacks. They only attacked when they were 99% sure of success. So often they attacked at night. Often they used the fishermen as spies. They would send these guys to sell fish to potential targets so as to find out about their strengths and weaknesses. In one occasion, a group of pirates acted as if their ship... um, was (laughs) was <laughs> they, they put on some serious acting they acted as if they had been attacked by pirates and they were some poor people needing help so that when somebody came to help them out they promptly attacked them with the element of surprise in many cases pirates would dress as soldiers and steal their ships in order to catch villagers unprepared So there were times when villagers would actually attack and kill real soldiers, thinking that they were pirates. In terms of weaponry, Chinese muskets were of fairly low quality, so mostly was hand-to-hand combat. You know, yeah, they had cannons, of course, for long distance, but once it got close, they mostly turned to swords and knives, um... Something similar to the Japanese naginata, you know, this uh, long pole with a blade at the end. Uh, Bows, arrows, you know, that kind of thing. This policy of brutality against those, you know, anybody who resisted when they were attacked, they would be turned to pieces. And pirates would typically be more merciful against those who surrendered immediately. Kind of like the ancient Roman policy of uh, uh, if you wait for us to start a siege, then we're going to rip you to pieces. But if the second you see us showing up, you surrender, then we'll be more merciful. There was even that saying in ancient Rome about, you know, that once the ram has touched the wall, uh, the ram meaning the battering ram has touched the wall, then all bets are off and there's no... Nothing but unconditional surrender would do after that. The pirates operated along a similar principle. Often, they would engage in major violence for psychological purposes. You know, there were cases where pirates would tear out the heart of a soldier and eat it in front of other soldiers in order to create this sense of terror so that the next time soldiers would see them, they would surrender immediately. The state was as bloody as the pirates were. You know, the state execution were similarly horrible, like the death by slicing I mentioned. You know, both sides used extreme violence to intimidate people into submitting. It's kind of like, if you ever watch that awesome movie that is The Princess Bride... There's a line where the dread pirate Robert say, 
Once word leaks out that a pirate has gone soft, people begin to disobey you. And then it's nothing but work, work, work all the time. So in other words, you had to be tough, you had to be brutal, and then people would be much more likely to comply, and you didn't have to be brutal that often, because your reputation would precede you. Pirates got brave enough that they started attacking western ships as well. You know, in uh, 1757, Canton had turned into the only port where trade between Europe and China was officially allowed, and the East Indian Company was very active in the area, so the pirates would regularly mess with their business. One of the other ways in which pirates financed their operation was by taking captives. Uh, This was also the main way that they used to increase their numbers. They took captives because A, they could make money with ransom, and B, they could get labor out of them. In some cases, if uh, relatives of those they had captured haggled over price, pirates would chop off the ears of the captives and send them to the relatives as a warning, saying, like, do, we really, do you really want to haggle over price? Do, do we need to keep cutting more body parts before you agree? They always free the hostages who were ransomed, because, again, you want to keep a reputation. You, know, you don't want to have that ambiguity that people don't know that if they pay... Are you going to free them or not? They always freed people if they paid. Those who couldn't fetch a good ransom, they could be put to use in other ways. In some cases, they were given the choice to join the crew. It's estimated that most people became pirates after being captured. Estimates suggest that possibly more than 50%, and maybe even a lot more than that, became pirates in this way. Parents in need of money sometimes sold their sons to pirates. If if pirates offered you a chance to join their crew and you refuse, pirates would become quite unhappy. And unhappy pirates are not a good thing. Glasspool described this process in this quote. He said, Next morning these boats were brought to the fleet. Ten or twelve men were taken in them. As these had made no resistance, the chief said he would allow them to become pirates, if they agreed to take the usual oath. Three or four of them refused to comply, for which they were punished in the following cruel manner. Their hands were tied behind their back, a rope from the masthead uh, was placed between their arms, and hoisted three or four feet from the deck and five or six men flogged them with three rattans twisted together till they were apparently dead, then hoisted them back up to the masthead and left them hanging nearly an hour, then lowered them down and repeated the punishment till they either died or complied with the oath. You get the idea here. Now, in some cases, captives were not even given the option to join the actual crew, but they were simply used as manpower without the benefits of becoming one of the boys and splitting a share of the profits. Westerners, Western captives, they often spared them in exchange for being taught more about how to use guns. The case of one Armenian who uh, served as a doctor for a pirate ship for over a year. One, there's a crazy story about one blind guy who was captured 
and his job for the near future would be to give massages to all the pirates. You know, uh, let's see your resume. What did you do in life? Well, you know, there was this time when I became a masseur for a pirate ship. That makes for a good story. Occasionally, some captives rebelled and killed pirates in their sleep. There's a story of a Miss Liang who was a Dan boatwoman who had been kidnapped and raped by pirate captain Chen Yasheng. She killed him and along with some captives killed uh, the other pirates. She was later rewarded by the government. But this clearly was the exception rather than the rule. Now, beside attacking at sea, uh, pirates raided many villages between Canton and Macau. Many villages burned by pirates in this area, they were destroyed. They, they also had an interesting, an interesting deal with secret society members on the mainland. The secret society members would give them information and sometimes work with them. Sometimes land bandits would ask pirates to help raid a village on the coast. And pirates did need land support for supplies. Macau was a meeting place for many pirates and traders and gamblers and the whole underworld. So commerce suffered at the hands of pirates, but at the same time pirates stimulated the black market. Even soldiers and public officials were often paid off by pirates. Um, those who they did not pay off, often they would kill. So it kind of makes, it's one of the things. Do you want to take the envelope with the money or do you want us to cut your throat? Well, needless to say, many people chose the former. Well, let's look at the life on some of these ships. Ships were small and offered very little in the way of privacy. The captain typically had a cabin for his family, but most everyone else slept below deck or they were even slept above deck exposed to the elements. Lack of space on the ships made people edgy. So sailors became notorious for being quick to get into fights. And not surprisingly, you know, if you are in this overcrowded environment 24-7, you're probably a little more nervous than somebody who has plenty of uh, personal space. So people on the South Chinese coast became renowned for constantly getting into fights. Kids were encouraged to fight since they were young. Uh, one of the popular sports in the area was to have rock fights with one another. It was unusual if local festivities didn't feature at least one giant brawl, because fighting for these people was a mean to release the repressed anger. Intoxication was also a popular pastime. It allowed escape from the harsh daily conditions they faced. So many pirates, and even the ones who weren't pirates, but just fishermen and boat people, like to drink, smoke opium, chew uh, battle nuts, you know, Diet-wise, they did not have the best, you know, they ate mainly rice, drank water, had some fish, of course, uh, dried veggies. Rarely they would get fresh veggies or fruit or pork or poultry. Speaking, since we're continuing to chat about the culture of the pirates, for fun, some of their favorite pastimes were singing songs, you know, they love music, playing cards, 
drinking, storytelling, fishing. Uh, Kuo was unique since he had a library and often, you know, the pirate I mentioned earlier, what I refer to as the nerd pirate, he had uh, his own personal library and often recited poetry and read novels, but this was clearly not a popular pastime. Whenever they got to port, pirates would often visit opium dens, brothels, and places for gambling. The English officer Glasspool said, The pirates love games, and spend their free time playing cards and smoking opium. Gambling in particular was one of their favorite things. You know, there, there's a story they tell that's hilarious, where there's a group of pirates that's playing, uh, I forget which particular gambling game, you know, what they are playing, but they are playing when the battle begins, and they are slow at getting up and going to join the fighting. They are keep on fighting while the battle is raging, and one player is killed at the gambling table, and the other just pushes both aside and keep playing. So <laughs> that makes for a movie scene right there. Author Robert Anthony writes, When viewed against the Confucian standards of the day, the sexual habits of seafarers, particularly pirates, were unconventional and non-conformist. They self-consciously defied the sexual mores and family values of the day. You know, Confucian rules of the times were very strict in terms of, well, not so much for men, but definitely for women. They were very much against sex outside of marriage, but this was absolutely normal for the both people. For example, it was fairly routine for the teenagers among the both people, both boys and girls, to have sex outside of marriage. Similarly, you know, they kind of violated all the rules. There was a lot of bisexuality among the both people. And in a rather curious statistic, in 1770, an official estimated that there were some 8,000 boats just around Canton that were used almost exclusively for prostitution. 8,000 boats? That's, and, you know, probably not just one person per each boat. So... That gives you an idea of the scope of the prostitution business among the both people. In any case, let's look at how the government responded to the formation of this pirate confederacy. They had already started, before the confederacy was actually formed, to try to destroy them. You know, the second they had come back from Vietnam, the Chinese government had been busy trying to get rid of them, just wipe them off the face of the earth. In 1804, the emperor had appointed a certain Na Yan Cheng to exterminate the pirates. Na had fought against the White Lotus rebels, so now he was sent to crush the pirates. He arrived in Guangdong province in 1805, and realized quickly that the resources given to him to fight the pirates were very poor. Historian Dian Murray has this to say about the conditions that were found in uh, Guangdong province. He said, Coordinating movement across administrative jurisdictions, let alone cross provinces, was almost impossible. One of the problems, too, was the fact that the Manchu rulers didn't really trust their own army, so they didn't want to create big army units for fear that they would rebel. 
but of course this meant that most of their units were too small to fight the pirates. Na had at his disposal 19,000 men, and he was going to go out and fight some 60,000 pirates, so clearly those are not good odds. Besides lack of manpower, there are other problems. Uh, for one, well, this affected both the pirates and uh, the Chinese army. Uh, Chinese gunpowder was of fairly low quality, but again, this affected both sides. Um, many of the weapons given to the sailors in the navy were of very poor quality. Soldiers often fled when pirates attacked. There were cases of sailors breaking their own ships in order to avoid having to go fight the pirates. So it's not surprising then that at around this time the pirates have been able to play cat and mouse with the Chinese navy, defeating them in multiple occasions. Uh, in 1903 they had crashed Brigadier General Wang Piao and later Provincial Commander-in-Chief Sun Chuan Mo. Uh, the replacement for Son had gone, but had lost a whole fleet to a storm in 1805. So, you know, things were not going extremely well for the government effort to rein in the pirates. In 1805, Chinese and Portuguese forces joined together trying to capture a pirate leader on shore, but of course, what happened? A soldier who had been paid off fired a warning shot, giving the pirate time to escape. Kind of desperate, not knowing what to do in order to gain more men, Na issued a proclamation asking all the fishermen to help fighting pirates in exchange for food and money. He also encouraged them to set up their own militia. You know, not bad moves, all in all, but... Despite this, Nagar on the wrong side of the emperor, because when the emperor found out that the Portuguese had participated in joint operations, which incidentally failed, along with the Chinese navy, uh, he didn't like it so much. This, was, this had to do with uh, more his stance regarding cooperation with the Portuguese. In 1805, Na tried to attack one of the pirate bases. He and his men succeeded in killing almost a hundred pirates, including the younger brother of the leader, Chen Yi. The pirates retaliated by attacking all along the coast, but this wasn't, you know, there was a good fight back and forth, and so all in all the pirates lost quite a few men. But even if you accept the higher estimate, saying that possibly up to a thousand pirates died during these weeks of fighting, that's still a tiny fraction for a campaign that was supposed to destroy them altogether. Na decided to abandon the more aggressive tactics and rely more on uh, the technique of offering pardons to any pirate that would surrender. Uh, one of the things that he did was to ask proof of their sincerity by killing other pirates. So they would have to bring in the heads of some other pirates they had killed in order for their surrender to be considered valid. The emperor wasn't so thrilled about it. He was against the idea of giving money to pirates who surrendered. Uh, Na, however, did it anyway. Na tried to argue that things were working out, that he had nearly defeated the pirates by now. Here is what he said. He said, they are now in a poor and impoverished state at sea. The leaders and followers are both in danger. Each day they only have one meal. Life is hard on board ships. 
Furthermore, the junks of the pirates who have surrendered are in bad shape. The cannons are not able to fire, and the pirates lack gunpowder and shot. Now, none of this was true. None was just now was making it up. And the provincial governor in the area promptly informed the emperor that now was making it up. Uh, making things even worse, the pirates that were surrendering were often surrendering, bringing in the heads of people who were not pirates at all, some random villagers who they had killed and say, hey, look how sincere I am. And so, you know, the whole thing wasn't quite working out. So the emperor finally dismissed Na and replaced him with a new commander, uh, Wu Shungya Kuang. Now, Na, in fairness, had been asked to do the impossible with limited resources. But, you know, so not entirely his fault, but clearly he still didn't succeed. However, fast forward to November 16, 1807, and something happened that cast a serious, some serious shadow about the future of the Confederacy. The big boss, Cheng Yi, died at the age of 42. Some sources tell us that he drowned in a typhoon. Some sources tell us that he died fighting. There's really no way to know for sure. Either way, this was very, very bad news for the Confederacy. I mean, Cheng Yi was the guy who had been able to keep it all together. Now, with him gone, would the Confederacy break up and different fleets would go back to quarreling among each other? Or would someone be able to step up and claim the leadership role unopposed and keep the Confederacy together? Well, someone did. And that someone is the lady we spoke of at the beginning of this episode our pirate queen. Rather than becoming a grieving widow, taking some money and retiring to private life, Cheng Yi's wife claimed the leadership role of the confederacy, which by now counted some 1,500 ships and 60,000 pirates. More incredible yet than her claiming the leadership is the fact that her subordinates accepted her claim without a peep. I mean, the obvious question is, how could this happen? At a time and in a part of the world where many women routinely had their feet bound, what was it about this woman that allowed her to maintain her grip on power? In an environment filled with ambitious, ruthless outlaws, why was she not kicked aside? The short answer is we have no idea. You know, sources do not tell us what is that she did, what is that she was, you know, what what was about her personality that was able to make this claim and succeed. So that's the quick answer. But let's go, you know, let's finally dedicate a little time to her and go a little deeper about the the info that we have. Not much, admittedly, but what we do have about her. As I mentioned in the intro, we are not even sure of the name of the amazing woman who pull off this feat. Most often in the sources she's referred to as Cheng Yi Sao or Qin Shi, which it means either the wife or the widow of Cheng Yi. Some sources hint that her name may have been Shi Xiang Ku, 
Others refer to as to her as uh, Shi Yang. But we're far from sure. You know, we really don't know. So if we don't even know her name, what do we know about this lady? We know that she was born sometime around 1775 and probably not in the most privileged circumstances. You know, by 1801 and perhaps even earlier, she was a prostitute in Canton's floating brothels. These brothels existed on ships, which were known as the flower boats. These were anchored close to Canton and usually catered to sailors. It was due to her line of work that she met Cheng Yi. We can assume he was a customer, but again, we do not know the details. As chief of the Confederacy, Cheng Yi could have pretty much any woman he wanted. But he was so intrigued with her that he chose to marry her in 1801. And the tale tells us that she agreed only on the condition that he would uh, be willing to share his power with her. Now think about that for a second. The idea that a sex worker could dictate conditions to a man of Cheng Yi's power seems wild. But even wilder is the fact that he accepted. So this tells us that there was something quite special about her. Before we proceed further, let's go back to the obvious question. How could a woman from humble origins end up becoming a true pirate queen? I mean, in the West, during the heyday of piracy, there was such prejudice against women at sea that most pirate crews didn't allow them on board. There were a few exceptions, certainly, but the general rule was against women pirates. It's easy to imagine that China, being the home of Confucianism, which dictates a very subordinate role for women, would be even stricter in its rules. Some popular beliefs stated being born female was punishment for sins in a previous incarnation. This is the same culture that produced foot binding, you know, a practice that crippled women by binding their feet tightly in order to deform them and forever keep them tiny, which was part due to a fetish for small feet part statement that the family was so well-to-do that they could afford to make women not work. Confucius himself, the number one philosopher that has been embraced by mainstream Chinese culture, Confucius had said that women were to be under the authority of the fathers, husbands, or, or even adult sons. And while this is certainly true about Chinese culture, I mean, I'm not exaggerating it a bit, that's just the way it was, The picture about gender roles in China is a bit more complex than one would initially think. There were quite a few contradictions regarding the role of women in China. You know, on one hand, yes, there was a tradition of binding the feet, but there are also plenty of stories about heroic female individuals. Confucianism clearly held sway in polite society, but the sea culture of the boat people was outside normal standards of Confucianism. Here women work alongside the men and never had their feet bound. You know, women really could not rise in normal settings that were blessed by the law because of Confucian rules, 
but they could do that outside of it. Women could climb the hierarchy much more among pirates than in the respectable society. Pirates were oddly progressive about gender roles. Um, women pirates in China were fairly common. You know, they obviously challenged the Confucian ideal of womanhood and the idea of females as uh, virtues in their passivity. Unlike in the West, Chinese female pirates, they did not have to disguise themselves as men. Some of the sources I read, some of the historians I've read, well, in this case, I think it's Dean Murray, he says, detailed information on women and their lives is difficult to come by under any circumstances. But even more so in the case of pirates and other groups for whom written records were anathema. While this is true, the record seems clear in suggesting that there were more chances for freedom as a pirate than anywhere else in society for a woman. Um, there were a couple of cases of female pirate leaders in the history of pirates in China. So that's the context in which Cheng Yisao emerge. One thing we do know is that in her bid for leadership, she gained the support of her husband's relatives. She also enlisted the help of 21-year-old Chan Pao, who was a very popular leader with the rank and file. Once we dive a little in Chan Pao's background, the story gets really weird. So, well, might as well, let's do it now. Six, six years earlier, when he was 15, Chan Pao, who had been a Dan fisherman, had gone fishing with his father, but they were captured by Chang Yi himself. The story goes that he and Chang Yi started an homosexual relationship. Now, it's not clear if it started as rape or if it started as a voluntary union. And the funny thing about it is that Chang Yi was not homosexual by any stretch of the imagination, or rather, he was in the sense that he was more properly would be more he was bisexual you know he had uh, he married he had a relationship with men he had a relationship with women apparently pirates weren't too discriminating in where their pleasure came from as many pirates he was happily bisexual historian murray tells us that People have explained homosexuality among pirates in other places on the basis of lack of women. But women were quite abundant among Chinese pirates. You know, Chinese piracy was a family affair. There was uh, even a case of uh, a Western observer mentioned that it was, I quote, it was surprising the number of women who lives with these people. So can't really explain homosexuality in terms of lack of access to women. That was simply not the case in China here. Now, it's possible that the frequency of homosexuality among pirates was inflated. It's not really clear how much homosexual acts were to initiate somebody into the gang or how much it was consensual. The only info we have comes from the testimony of those on trial for piracy. And Chinese law had strict punishment against homosexuality. So it was better, obviously, for the defendant to claim to have been raped and forced into piracy than to admit to have become a pirate by choice 
since you know in this way you would avoid harsher penalties again one of our sources tell us thus it is conceivable that pirates may have confessed to homosexual activities they did not commit in order to escape the death penalty for the piracy they did commit reality is it's all speculation because no one knows so i'm just giving you what the sources tell us without a whole lot of you know i'm not able to really critically assess how accurate or not they are because we really lack the basic info here regardless to cheng yi however chen pao is not simply another sexual conquest he clearly liked him enough to make him a captain and eventually adopt him now if you are weirded out by the idea of adopting your teenage homosexual lover as a son you are not alone uh, i very much feel for you in either case, Champa was given command of his own ship, and he demonstrated to be a talented leader and a good pirate. So now, six years later, Chengi Sao picked him to be the operational commander of the Red Fleet, that by now had more than 17,000 men under their direct command, never mind the 40-plus thousand they, they had under their indirect command. What she would do is take care of the overall strategy and business and, you know, she would run the show in a more distant way and Chen Hisao would be the operational commander. Because this story is not weird enough yet, to make it even more bizarre, Chen Hisao also picked him as her lover. So just to recapitulate, he was her dad's husband, former lover, and now her own adopted son yeah i know what you're thinking i'm with you in any case we don't know how or why but she was recognized the head of the confederacy and the pirate council with all of the top captains including kuopodai uh, where you know he ruled over the black banner fleet with some possibly six to ten thousand people with you know all of the other leading captains who agreed to kind of bow down to her authority among the things she did once she assumed command was making sure to build alliances with villages on the coast and always paid them for services in order to never be without allies on the mainland she also set up an extensive network of spies. Uh, it is said that she had spies in pretty much every harbor. But one of the things that she's most well known for is something that she and Chan Pao did together. They created an unusual system of laws for the Confederacy. Here I'm quoting from the book The History of Pirates Who Infested the China Sea from 1807 to 1810. In the book it says the following... The wife of Ching Yi was very strict in every transaction. Nothing could be done without a written application. Anything which had been taken or plundered was regularly entered on the register of the storehouse. The pirates received out of this common fund what they were in need of, and nobody dared to have private possessions. If on a piratical expedition any man left the line of battle whether by advancing or receding every pirate might accuse him at a general meeting and on being found guilty he was beheaded so Chengi Sao was um, 
She had to approve of the attacks beforehand, and she would behead you if you disobeyed. Only after receiving her permission could an attack be carried out. Whatever loot you acquired, you had to share it in the communal fund or get your head cut off. Anyone going to shore without permission would have their ears cut. Even more unusual was the policy toward captive women. Here is how the rule read. To use violence against any woman shall be punished with death. Considering that rape among pirates was rather common, her rule defied custom and probably wasn't particularly popular among quite a few people in her fleet. But proving yet again that somehow she commanded a monstrous degree of power and respect, she was able to enforce it. Anyone who violated it? Well, yeah, you guessed it. They would be beheaded. And if anyone offered to buy a captive woman who wasn't ransomed by her relatives, they, would ha- they could, but they would have to marry her, be loyal and good to her, or off with his head, which seems to be the standard policy for uh, Cheng Sao. Now, something else about her. At least part of her prestige was tied to her reputed shamanic abilities. It is said that she never made important decisions without first consulting a guardian spirit who would advise her on the proper course of action. She had a statue of the spirit in all of her ships and trusted her success on this advice. So our lady is getting more and more interesting by the minute. She's a former sex worker. She's now a pirate queen and part-time shaman. Chinese religion as a whole was very much steeped in shamanism. The use of oracles and the belief in spirits were cornerstones of religion in China at the time. Chen Pao did the same thing, and he had shrines on his ships. Some say that they used uh, oracles to convince men of whatever decision they made. Or maybe this was no cynical ploy at all, maybe they really believed them and they obeyed them. On one occasion, they waited for two whole days to attack a poorly defended town and ended up not attacking it because the oracle said he was no good not to do it. Their captive, the British Glasspool, who, was, who clearly didn't share the local beliefs, had this to say. They are very superstitious and consult their idol on all occasions. If his omens are good they will undertake the most daring enterprises. Glasspool also noted that they would use garlic water sprinkled on everybody before battle as charm against being shot. In some way you can see the logic here. You know, this Life on the sea was rough. The sea both gave life and took it. So in an effort to come to terms with it, sailors appealed to spirits through sacrifices, you know, whether burning incense, burning paper money, doing animal sacrifice, any of these things. Every ship had a religious specialist, uh, who was known as the incense burner, who burned incense and paper money as offerings to the gods, spirits and ancestors, so that they would help them out. In one occasion, for example, the Chinese navy blocked Chan Pao ships and he prayed. The oracle said, uh, 
If you engage in battle, you're going to be defeated, but you can get out if you try to flee and escape. So that's what he did. They pushed to try to break through the line, and, you know, they were successful, and they took it as confirmation that the oracles never lied. And as noted a minute ago, more than once, Champao refused to attack good targets because the oracle said no. Champao was an interesting cat in other ways as well. He had a taste for the flamboyant, usually dressed with purple silk robes and a black turban, and his personality was equally intriguing. In one occasion, a man's father was killed by pirates, and his son, believing that Champao was responsible, joined his crew in the hope of getting close enough to kill him, but he was discovered. Champao told him, look, I have nothing to do with your father's death. But rather than be mad about the fact that this guy was trying to kill him, he actually praised him for his bravery and gave him money. Part of what made Champao successful was his constant desire to learn new tricks. For example, trying to incorporate European technologies in his battle tactics. Some suggest that he had plans of making himself emperor. Now, this may or may not be true. The evidence is far from conclusive. But usually the pirates' motives were more economic than political. The pirates were kind of like the men who followed Spartacus in, during Spartacus' rebellion. They were not trying to change the world. They were just trying to get a better deal in it. In either case, under the leadership of our pirate queen and their second-in-command, Champao, the confederacy grew considerably in size. At its most powerful, the confederacy had more men than both the British and Spanish fleets combined when they were fighting each other in the, in the war in 1588. And the Imperial Navy, the Chinese Imperial Navy, was having a harder and harder time limiting the Confederacy activities. In 1808, the pirates routed a provincial commander who had been sent against them. They killed him with a cannon shot during battle and destroyed half of the regional fleet. Still in 1808, there was another battle with a new officer sent against them, a certain Lin Kuo Liang, and, you know, during the course of the battle, Champao made only a few of their ships emerge from a bay, so the Lin saw them and attacked recklessly, not realizing that Champao had saved most of his ships for a second attack. And it was in the second attack that they were able to surround Lin's ships. Um, Lin had his men try to shoot at Champao and kill him, but they only grazed him, not killed him. So Champao's men boarded Lin's ship and, you know, brutal hand-to-hand fighting broke out until one of Champao's men killed Lin. Uh, in another version of the story, Lin killed himself to avoid capture. In either case, most of Lin's ships were destroyed and he died. Despite previous failures, still in 1809 there was a new admiral with some hundred imperial warships who went out to fight the pirates, initially had some success. So, you know, initially he felt like, oh, I beat them back, I sent some of their ships fleeing. 
but things work for a little bit. You know, during one of these battles, by the way, there's a great story about a female pirate who had fought with two sabers, beating down many soldiers before being shot and killed. Again, a reminder that female pirates were not completely unique. There were quite a few. But despite the initial success, yet again the pirates were able to regroup and defeat the Imperial Navy. So you can start seeing a pattern here. The the Chinese Navy is getting beaten pillar to post by the pirates. By 1809, the Emperor put a new guy in charge of the war against the pirates, which you can... I'm imagining these guys receiving the job were not the happiest possible because you know he's like do you want to go take the job that the guy before you died trying the guy before you got miserably lost the guy before him you know it's like nonetheless uh, frustrated with lack of results the emperor sent a certain biling as a mediator he was a former governor from one of these provinces and biling ordered a coastal blockade, he encouraged the growth of local militia, building walls for defense and all of that. By coincidence, in 1809 there was a period of famine that reduced the available food. The Bailing's logic was, well, we can actually make the best of it, because without rice and gunpowder there would be no pirates. So let's, rather than trying to chase them on the ocean, let's figure out how to separate them from the sources of support. Um, So impose very harsh punishments against anybody who was found guilty of helping the pirates. Sometimes he would chop off the head of people who sold rice to the pirates. But here is the deal. Pirates paid a lot more than market price for rice. So there were still many people who were willing to take a chance and willing to sell to them. Often, fishermen would pretend to go out fishing, but in reality they would go to sell stuff to the pirates. Many ships would go out and sell their weapons to the pirates and then say that they had been robbed. Even soldiers and sometimes even public officials held the pirates would, uh, you know, the pirate policy was to divide whatever loot they acquired between shares for themselves, shares for the people selling them the stuff they needed, and shares for soldiers and public officials that they could uh, put on their paybook and have as spies, essentially. Despite this, the combination of famine, stricter enforcement, did reduce the quantity of available food. So, Bailing imposed also other measures. He forced salt traders to go by land rather than water and prevented all merchant ships from leaving port in order to starve the pirates. So upset because of the less food available, pirates began attacking the mainland. So they started attacking villages anywhere between Macau and Canton. 1809 is definitely the year where hostilities between pirates and the Chinese Navy increase considerably. Still in 1809, a commander by the name of Xu Tingkui engaged in battle with the White Flag Fleet. He was actually able to defeat the pirates in this occasion and even kill the leader of the White Fleet. However, Chen Pao arrived with some 300 ships to rescue them 
he somehow personally jumped on Shu's ship at the head of his men. And thanks to this rally, they were able to destroy his fleet and even kill the Shu himself. So, you know, nice effort from the Chinese navy, but still not enough. There were, however, a few cases, even the Red Fleet, the Red Flag Fleet, they were defeated once in 1809 while attacking a village. There were quite a few battles where wins and losses were, they were trading wins and losses back and forth. On August 16, 1809, the Red Flag Fleet was only 16 miles from Canton. Pirates were busy going up and down the coast requesting tributes from villages. And this one village of Sunshine decided not to pay off one of the fleets. So pirates burned the village to the ground. And before leaving, they left from the limbs of a large banyan tree. They left the heads of over 80 villagers. You know, think of it as a really creepy Christmas tree. That's the pirate version of it. Rather than ornaments, from this one tree you have 80 severed heads hanging. The Red Flag Fleet went on a rampage. They destroyed several outposts where the army was stationed. They got in several battles with both soldiers and villagers. During these weeks of fighting, Champao and this man killed over 2,000 people and took over 1,000 prisoners. Chengisao ordered him to continue up the river. And this one village, uh, villagers decide to again resist, and led by a martial art master, they attacked the pirates, supposedly killing 10 of them when the pirates came into their village. You know, this sounds like an awesome setup for a brilliant kung fu movie, but things didn't quite work out for the martial art master since Champao and this man made a second attack, and this time they killed this uh, kung fu master. His daughter, in some version his wife, in some version his daughter, is not entirely clear, but some female, some close female relative led the villagers, um, you know, took over after either her father or her husband, depending on the versions, died, and led the villagers into the fight, but again, she was killed as well. Pirate leaders at one point got angry, because during their advance, um, in one city, almost 200 pirates were killed during the fighting, so pirate leaders offered a reward for every head that was to be cut off, so each pirate that would cut off a head would collect an extra reward. Glasspool was uh, their prisoner at this time, witnessed this, and said that he saw a pirate with two heads tied to his neck by their long braids that were kind of often wore, worn by Chinese men at this time, and he was like running into the village looking for a third head that he could add. By now they were at the doors of Canton, and Panic broke out in the city. They were also attacking just outside of Macau, and they even captured the brig belonging to the Portuguese governor of Timor. The Portuguese were mad at seeing their brig being stolen within sight of the city walls, and yet there was not a whole lot that they could do. You know, they tried to sail against the pirates, but despite later boasts that they had damaged the pirates, in reality they were defeated. 
The British also annoyed with the pirates. Initially they had better luck in fighting off the pirates, but they couldn't quite coordinate forces with the Chinese because both sides were as suspicious of one another as they were of the pirates. So their operations never were as successful as they could have been. By November, Cheng Sao was anchored in a bay north of Lantau Island. The Portuguese went after her, while the Chinese assembled more forces. The rest of the Red Flag fleet arrived to help, so now they were surrounded by the Portuguese, by uh, the county magistrate, and by the provincial commander-in-chief. So this was, you know, both the Chinese and the Portuguese were getting serious here. At first, Chinese and Portuguese couldn't enter the bay, but were satisfied pinning down the pirates inside the bay. They had Effectively, they had trapped them, and they were content laying siege for three weeks. Pirates wanted to attack, but the wind kept being against them day in after day. So, at this point, rumors started spreading that the pirates were about done and would soon be destroyed. So it looks like the game is up for the Pirate Queen and the Red Flag Fleet. So Governor General Bai Ling came from Canton to personally witness the end of the dreaded pirates. But when he got wind in his favor, the provincial commander-in-chief, a guy by the name of Sun Chuan Mo, launch some 43 suicide boats filled with straw and explosives and set them on fire and send them toward the pirates in perfect Game of Thrones styles. This could have been the end. But Glasspool tells us that, I quote, the fireboats came very regularly in the center of the fleet, two and two, burning furiously. One of them came alongside of the vessel I was in, but they succeeded in booming her off. She appeared to be a vessel of about 30 tons. Her hold was filled with straw and wood, and there were a few small boxes of combustibles on her deck, which exploded alongside of us without doing any damage. The pirates, however, towed them all on shore, extinguishing the fire, and broke them up for firewood. So to add insult to injury for the Chinese Navy, not only did the plan not work, and rather than destroying the Red Fleet, these boats became a free gift for the pirates. To make it worse, the plan was now about to backfire, literally backfire. The wind had changed, and some fire boats were now sent back to the provincial governor, and they ended up setting on fire two of his ships. And worst of all, on the following day, the pirates were able to break through. An author refers to this as an unmitigated disaster for the Chinese Navy. The pirates triumph by proving that basically they were superior to the combined efforts of Western and Chinese forces. So as a result, the provincial governor's son was kicked out of office. You know, the Portuguese were taking credit for building the fire ships, so they tried to lie, saying that the attack by the fire ships had killed a lot of pirates. Again, this wasn't true. 
Glasspool, who was a prisoner of the pirates, reported barely 40 of them were killed. So it's now becoming obvious that neither the Chinese Navy nor Westerners can beat the Confederacy. Problem is, now pirates began fighting each other. The leader of the Black Flag fleet, Kuo Potai, was jealous of Champao because of his quick rise to power and because he had won the affection of Chang Sao. Ku apparently was also quite smitten with Chang Sao, so was not too happy when she picked Champao instead. So the rivalry between Gu and uh, Champao led to a small fight between them in 1810. During the siege we just mentioned, Champao had asked for Ku for you know, to come, to show up and help them, but he had refused. Chang vowed revenge. So there was a battle between Champao and uh, the Black Fleet. When, uh, and this was a battle that Kuo won, killing over a thousand men from the Red Fleet. The government saw this as their big chance. You know, they were kept losing in battle, so they figured we have to score some victories somehow. If the pirates are fighting each other, well, this is good news. So, humbled by the losses, the government was more willing than ever to pardon pirates. So, Kuo used this moment to break with the Confederacy. I mean, it was hard not to, right? After you got into a fight with other members of the Confederacy, even killing a thousand of them, it's safe to say you're probably done. You're not going to find a big welcome with open arms back. So he turned around, he now had captives for, from the Red Fleet that, he, that would help him to show his sincerity to the government. He could show up with this captives, say, look, I, I don't want to be a pirate no more, look, I brought you some captives. Ku, however, did not trust the Chinese government, so he insisted on having the Portuguese judge of Macau as mediator in negotiations with the Chinese government. Negotiations worked out, so on January 13, 1810, the Black Fleet surrendered with some nearly 6,000 men, plus women and kids, and turning in over 113 ships. The government promptly pardoned Kuo and gave him uh, rank in the military. So Kuo turned around and joined the government expedition against his former pirate friends. As you may imagine, Champa was furious about hearing of Kuo's surrender. In mid-January, he dealt with his frustration by attacking the Chinese-Portuguese fleet, blocking the access to the Pearl River Delta. He smashed them and entered the delta despite them. He attacked... Um, he attacked a western ship killing its officers and robbing much of the money and at this point he decided to just party it up pirate style he had a wild lunar new year celebration with gongs and firecrackers that could be heard miles away then he began attacking villages in the area But despite the parties and the victories in battle, many in the Red Fleet were beginning to think that maybe Kuo had done the right thing by surrendering, that their luck couldn't hold forever. And this is where our pirate queen showed her genius again. She was not blinded by victory, and she knew that good luck doesn't last forever. 
Sensing that her time may be running out, she consulted with her guardian spirit, and the spirit told her to make a deal. So what she shows here is mastery in a key element of Taoist philosophy. The Tao Te Ching, which is the most important Taoist text, stresses over and over again the importance of knowing when to stop. I'll give you guys a few quotes from the Tao Te Ching. In the ninth poem of the 81 that make up the Tao Te Ching, it says, Stretch a bow to the very full, and you will wish you had stopped in time. Temper a sword to its very sharpest, and the edge will not last long. Retire when your work is done. Such is the way of heaven. In another passage, the Tao Te Ching says, to take all you want is never as good as to stop when you should. In another one yet, he who hoards much loses much. The contented man meets no disgrace. He who knows when to stop runs into no danger. He can long endure. Yet another line, just in case the Dada Ching has made this abundantly clear already, it says, Know what is enough. Abuse nothing. Know when to stop. Harm nothing. This is how to last a long time. And in the one-liner that captures this whole concept better than any other, in another poem in the Tao Te Ching, it says, There is no greater calamity than not knowing what is enough. Check that one out. There is no greater calamity than not knowing what is enough. Now, that's a good line right there. Why is it so hard for most people to grasp this? Why is it so hard to stop? Because no one wants to stop when things are going well. Think of just about every fighter you have ever heard of. Their career usually comes to a peak, begins to decline, the first chinks in the armor begin to appear, but it's really hard to walk away when you are used to winning and the money is pouring in. And so inevitably fighters tend to stay too long in the game and they end up taking monstrous amount of damage from younger fighters who are coming into their own peaks. Think of Muhammad Ali. Think of, well, pretty much any other fighter. Chengi Sao does what none of them know how to do. She chooses to walk away while the going is still good. And their timing couldn't be better. Since the government was seeing its forces getting beaten time and time again by the Confederacy, they were pushing this more conciliatory policy. They got to a point where basically they had told Chengi Sao, what do we need to give you for you to stop? What do we need to do to make you stop? Chengi Sao sent her second-in-command and their lover, Chan Pao, to discuss a possible peace with the government. So Chang approached the governor-general, Bai Ling, regarding what would happen if the entire Red Fleet, all of 14,000-plus men, were to surrender. As a mediator, the government used uh, a doctor <laughs> and an opium addict who was on friendly terms with the pirates. Chan Pao also asked for a Portuguese observer to monitor the proceedings to avoid uh, the Chinese government breaking its promises. But negotiations quickly broke down because the governor-general asked them to turn in all their boats, and Chengisau didn't want to. 
Shiat Tulch and Pauna were not turning in all our boats. That's not going to happen. They wanted to be able to keep at least 80 ships and some 5,000 followers to fight against some of their own pirate rivals. The emperor said, I quote, If indeed the said pirates sincerely come to surrender, then they must turn in all their boats and weapons. How can they ask to retain several tens of boats? If their purpose is to accompany the army in going out to sea to attack and arrest pirates, in atonement for their crimes and to show merit after their surrender, why cannot they be apportioned among the various vessels already in the navy? Yeah, that was a fairly logical objection on the part of the emperor, but the pirates didn't want any part of that. In the meantime, Chan Pao had a meeting with the British, promised them safe passage to you know, he essentially wanted to avoid a British-Chinese alliance, so he said, look, we're not going to attack you guys, just don't ally with the Chinese government. And the East India Company said, sound like a plan, and they gave him a bunch of gifts in return. The British promised that they would never fight the pirates unless the pirates attacked them first. At this point, it's Chang Sao who chooses to take a bold step and break the stalemate in the negotiations. Her subordinates, afraid for her life, begged her not to do it, but she ignored them, and on April 17, 1810, she went unarmed to visit the Governor-General Bai Ling in his headquarters in Canton. You know, she was just her, with the wives of some of the most important men in the Red Fleet. I'm sure it may have been very tempting for the governor-general to take the head of the confederacy when it was easy to do so, but he knew that bloody war would result if he did that. So the pirate queen was able to stroll unarmed right in the midst of of her enemies. The governor said, you know, look, I want to pardon you, but you have to give up your ships. She said, sorry, we want to keep the ships. You know, we want to become traders. We want to get into the sole trade and we need our ships. And she basically ignored all his attempts at compromise, reminding him that she could go back to being a successful pirate anytime unless she got what she wanted. So she turned out to be a staff at the negotiating table as she had been running the Confederacy. The governor began to give in. So they have a conference with all the most important pirate leaders in a pagoda outside of Macau. And on April 20, 1810, it happened. Just when they seem at the height of their power, the pirate confederacy that had brought down the Chinese navy countless times dismantled. Chengi Sao sailed one last time at the head of the Red Fleet and surrendered with 17,000 pirates. She obtained everything she wanted at the negotiating table. She was pardoned along with Chan Pao and along with all of her men except for some 126 were executed plus another 151 were exiled and 60 more were banished for two years. Kind of makes you wonder what these 300 some had done. You know, why these guys? Why not the thousands and thousands of other pirates? Probably my guess is that they were not on her good side, if she was willing to save everyone else but was also willing to throw these ones under the bus. 
But in either case, not only this, the pirates also got to keep all of their loot. And not only that, they were also offered posts within the government or the military. Champao was immediately made into a lieutenant and allowed to retain some between 20 and 30 ships just for himself, and he was put on salary. So many pirates were now allowed to join the army. They would receive naval commissions to go fight other pirates who were no longer seeing eye to eye with them. So Champao started fighting against some of the remnants of the blue, yellow and green flag fleets. Uh, he defeated them, he captured the leader of the blue fleet, some more pirates surrendered as a result of this. Basically this was the end of the confederacy. Uh, both the Portuguese and the Chinese claimed that they had brought pirates down, but it simply wasn't true. Uh, what had started this all was cause surrender, and essentially this was because of his rivalry with Champao. Also, the Confederacy had been getting probably too big. You know, this was the problem. They had a problem of too much success, like the Roman Empire. You can only stretch so big before ties between some of the rank and file pirates and the leadership become too distant. And a lot of this business was built was based on personal loyalty. So by becoming too big, they were beginning to lose some of the internal cohesion. Now, pirates typically don't get to retire or die of old age. Pirate life may be merry and eventful, but is usually short and dense at the gallows. Not only... Changisau managed to end up heading the biggest pirate confederacy in modern times, but she also beat the odds and carved a long, prosperous life for herself. She ended up marrying Chan Pao and had a kid with him in 1813. One of the sources I read, historian Murray, has this to say about her. He read, Changisau wielded authority in ways that made her unusual. And throughout her career, she acted in open defiance of Confucian behavioral norms. As Chengi's wife, she was anything but a docile, submissive own body. As his widow, she not only failed to remain chaste, but even broke the incest taboo when it served her purpose by marrying her adopted son. Despite such conduct, she was able to win the genuine support of her followers to the degree that they openly acclaimed her as the only person capable of holding the confederation together. As its leader, she demonstrated her ability to take command by issuing orders, planning military campaigns, and demonstrating that there were profits to be made in piracy. When the time came to dismantle the confederation, it was her negotiating skills above all that allowed her followers to cross the bridge from outlawry is that even a word? Outlawry? Never heard of that. In any case, I guess being an outlaw, to official dome. And all this was done by a woman so common that her personal identity is virtually unknown. By the way, I keep saying he. I have no idea if Murray is a man or a woman. First name is D-I-A-N, which I have no idea how to pronounce, so apologies if I mess that up. But this was a great passage that Murray, man or woman, as he or she may be, wrote. It kind of sums up Chang'e Sao in a very powerful type of way. 
So for the next many years, she eventually moved back to Canton, and again I quote saying, leading a peaceful life so far as was consistent with the keeping of an infamous gambling house. She eventually died in 1844, at 69 years old. A grain older lady, who in her time had ruled the southern coast of China, and successfully fought against the Chinese Navy, plus the Portuguese, plus the British. Hers, in my mind, is one of the greatest stories about which we know next to nothing. My great regret is that I don't have as much info to tell you about her tale, about what she was like, about what she did and thought as I would have liked to. This whole episode is my attempt to shine a light on this nearly forgotten epic chapter of history. Thank you for today's episode goes to Craig Buddy, the host of the History of Pirates podcast. Not only did he provide the intro to this episode, it's his voice that opens up the episode, but also he has given me quite a bit of assistance in terms of coming up with the research and for this episode. You know, I contacted him initially because I couldn't find sources and he helped me out, so Thank you so much, Craig. And if you guys want to check out his podcast, The History of Pirates, it's very entertaining. I had fun with it, so check him out. Some of you have asked for me setting up a Patreon account, so I finally got over my unbelievable laziness and done it. You know, I was, uh, so far, we're using... Many of you guys have been donating via PayPal, which is super sweet. You can continue to do that. You don't need to change or, if you prefer, you can either switch to Patreon, if you haven't done it yet, go into the Patreon account. I will put a link to the History on Fire Patreon page in the episode notes. So, either that, or you can go to patreon.com and search for me for and for History on Fire. So, that becomes an option to help out. I'll also make a post on my Facebook page. If you don't follow it already, go check it out. I have a public Facebook page where I post updates regarding the podcast, episodes, things like that. Uh, It's just under my name, Daniele Bolelli. Also, let me thank real quick a few people. Let me thank Eric McGracken, who's a personal injury lawyer and combat sports regulatory lawyer. He doesn't sell anything. He just sponsors this episode just because he likes it. He has a couple of websites that if you guys would be willing to check out, I think you may find some interesting stuff. One is called 
combatsportslaw.com and the other is bcinjurylaw.com with dash in between but I'm going to put the links in the episode notes that's always the easiest way to, to find them also a big thank you to blueapron.com that has been sponsoring every episode for this whole year I can't even tell you how much I've enjo- been enjoying their food I had it for lunch yesterday I had it for lunch the day before hopefully I'm going to be having it for lunch today it's just ridiculously good every time you know I mention Blue Apron to the producer and editor of History on Fire Savannah M her eyes got all dreamy and she's like oh, Blue Apron because it's so insanely good so I strongly recommend for you guys to try for less than $10 per person per meal Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. They have a wide variety of selection in their menus. So you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So do not wait. That's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. I can't even tell you how much I like them. They are really, really awesome. Not just because they sponsor the show, but really because the food quality is amazing. On uh, another note, something else that I consume pretty much every day are some of the products from onnit.com. Check them out for yourself. The website is www.onnit.com forward slash history. You will get an automatic 10% discount when you go through this um, through this link. I calculate that on average I use three, two to three different Omni products every single day, whether they are the supplements, some of their food, some of the clothing and exercise equipment. But... You know, I probably use, I don't know, maybe 30 of their products over my lifetime so far, and some of them daily. So, but again, don't take my word for it. Go check the website, see if anything catches your eye and interests you. And if that's the case, check them out. I personally really like them. And speaking of really like them, I've been, for the last several years, I've been traveling around with nothing but... Uh, Datsusara backpacks or computer bags that's what I go to work with when I teach history at college every day when I travel I'm using Datsusara backpacks or travel bags when I train in jiu-jitsu I use a Datsusara gi I really really like their products all hemp made all very high quality they have super good customer service um Chris O'Dell, the boss at Datsusara, is always uh, one of the believers that being fair to people and being generous goes a long way. So I never heard of anybody having a bad experience with them, customer service-wise. So check them out. Also, big thank you to anyone who has been using the History on Fire Amazon link. It helps the podcast a whole lot. Sometimes I mention books on the podcast and many of you guys then check them out, buying them via the Amazon link. It's very, very much appreciated. Uh, what else? There's um, 
a bonus episode of History on Fire that has not been released on iTunes. That's on the historyonfirepodcast.com website. That's the only place where you can get it. Also, there's a link in the episode notes to a lecture series I did about Taoism, just in case such thing interests you. A link also about an audiobook I have. So, you know, there are a few things that if you really miss my voice from one month to the next, you can check out and get it. Um, I believe that's it. So, uh, again, uh, the Patreon thing is a new thing. You might want to check it out. I may have by now gotten used to really long series, you know, three episodes, four episodes, all of that. So this is a different one with a one-off about uh, this very curious historical character that we tackle today. Um, Next episodes, I think... I don't think it's going to be a long one. I think it may be a two-part series. Uh, We're going to move back to early US, late 1800s, early 1900s, with one character that's... You know, by now I think you figured out what kind of characters attracts my attention. He's one of those larger-than-life figures. Uh, Should be a fun one. So that's coming up next. Having said all that, I wish you a good day, and I'll... Hopefully you'll check back in with me next month. Have a good one.